Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden from the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Welcome back to Johannesburg, Kobus. Thank you very much. After three lovely weeks in Japan, Kobus is now back uh, back in Africa, back in South Africa, and so uh, we're we're glad that he could make it back on the show, jet lag and all. Uh, we're also joined this uh, this evening by uh, Eric Meister, and for some of you who who follow us on Weibo at weibo.com slash zhongfeixiangmu, which of course is our China Africa project name in Chinese, uh, Eric is the man behind the uh, behind the myth there, and so Eric is manning our uh, our Weibo page in in Mandarin, and uh, you're getting some help from Natalia, right? So we have some Chinese contributors. Natalia, as well. yeah. Natalia. So we have some Chinese contributors now coming in, and our goal with with Eric is to kind of bring the dynamic debate that we're we're engaging both on the show and also on our Facebook page, and do it in Chinese as well. So Eric is is the community manager for our Weibo page. He's also studying uh, Mandarin at Guizhou University in Guiyang, where he is also a former Peace Corps volunteer. So we are thrilled to have you on the show for the first time. Good evening uh, from Guiyang. I'm thrilled to be here. Wonderful. Well, we uh, we always kind of break down three key issues of the week. This has been a particularly interesting week in Sino-African relations. Uh, a lot of volatility, a lot of tension, particularly coming out of both Ghana and Gabon. So we're going to first start with the events in Ghana, and we're going to look at this in uh, from two different perspectives. One is, you know, from the the latest you know summary of the key events that happened. Does this represent? And this is the key question that I'm going to pose to Kobus later in the show. Does this represent really a setback for the entire Africa project for the Chinese, or is this simply just two isolated incidents in Ghana, in in Gabon, and what does that mean? So we had 124 between 124 and 160 miners who are repatriated or were arrested and possibly repatriated. We'll clear that we'll clear that up later in the show as well. Back to China and a lot of violence, and then also a, a very a vocal outrage on Chinese social media, and so we'll talk about that. Finally, we're going to go. Then we're going to go on to Gabon, talk about Adex Petroleum, one of Sinopec's major investments. They suffered a setback there this week as well. Uh, what's behind that? We'll take a look, and then finally, uh, we're going to kind of do a quick wrap on the TCAD Summit. That's the Tokyo International China Africa Development Summit, and so Tokyo is now getting into the game. Japan putting up thirty-two billion dollars in development money for Africa. We'll see if that is motivated. In Part with the competition that it has with China. So let's get started. Yeah. Eric, sorry to interrupt you. I think I think TCAD is yes. Tokyo International Conference for African Development. I think it's not China Africa. I stand. Uh, I the stand. Dr- I stand st- very far away from China Africa. <laughs> oh man, that. W- <laughs> I stand corrected on that one. You know, it's funny because the the French foreign, uh, the French president uh, uh, François Hollande was in uh, in Tokyo in this uh, just past couple days, and in his speech, he actually made the same mistake where he he referred to the, the the Japanese as Chinese, which is a horrific. And I was just saying, what a dumbass for doing that. And his translator actually very very astutely, you know, corrected it, you know, and did, so the Japanese didn't see it, but a Japanese reporter caught him, and so here. Here is word to the wise that, uh, um, you know, it can happen to the best of us. So, okay. So let me just Tokyo International Conference on African Development, TCAD, nothing yes, to do with yes. China. Thank you for saving me there, Kobus. <laughs> okay, so let's get started with the events in Ghana. We'll, we'll backtrack uh, about a week. This, this started unfolding about a week ago when there were reports coming out 
of uh, uh, I think it's Western Ghana. And correct me if I'm wrong, but there's one particular region where uh, Chinese mining is particularly prevalent. prevalent and uh, the Ghanaian uh, security services went in. Now, the first reports came out and said basically that there was a raid on Chinese mines uh, for immigration and for, for labor violations, and they arrested them. Then, in the next couple of days, we started to see some rather gruesome and violent pictures that came out of that raid. One of the things that both Cobus and I, who are managing our Facebook page, tried to make very, very clear is that none of the pictures that were published on Weibo in China or on social media or on our page, in fact, uh, can, be ver- can be verified or validated. They show some very bloody Chinese people, some of them being beaten by what seems to be Africans. Uh, but again, there is no way to verify this. Um, but nonetheless, Cobus, it did spark an enormous amount of outrage uh, in China and also in Africa as well. And this this kind of crystallized a lot of the negative narratives that people kind of see in the Chinese investments in Africa as a whole. What was your, when, when you look back on the events of the past week, uh, what was your kind of reading of this and, and kind of bring us up to date on where we are now? Well, where we are now is a little bit difficult to say. Um, according to Financial Times today, um, uh, they, these uh, Chinese miners are apparently being released and they might be repatriated. But how exactly they're going to be repatriated is an issue. Um, you know, according to different, you know, some people are saying that they are being flown back and others are saying they have to arrange their own, their own um, flights, which is a problem because the flights from Accra to Beijing are full. Um, and also, a lot of these Chinese have stayed, uh, overstayed their visas, which means that they are wary that they might get either arrested at the border or shaken down for more money. There's a lot, uh, a lot of them are apparently in hiding. So it's it's just chaos, you know. Kind yeah. of the, you know, it, 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 I think I think the Ghanaian government ran into a little bit more than they bargained for. Well, let me, let's back up a little bit and talk about exactly who are these Chinese miners and what are they doing in, in, in Ghana particularly. Uh, there are an estimated 12,000 men, and, and they are men, uh, from an area in China called Shanglin, and this is a, a, in Guangxi province. Uh, and they, they, And this is very typical of Chinese migratory patterns in Africa where, you know, People from one community move over and then settle in one area. And so 80% of the gold miners in this area in, in Ghana are apparently from Shanglin. And what they've done is they've taken over a segment of the, of the Ghanaian mining economy, which is too small for the big mining companies to go, and yet bigger than what the local mining operations would do. So they brought in some equipment from China. They then started mining. They actually started to be successful. And that then prompted an enormous feedback and reaction, a strong negative reaction from locals, not to mention the fact that, you know, Cobus, we've been seeing pictures and reports of violence between uh, Ghanaians and these migrant uh, gold miners over the past year. So this was just really part of a bigger story and pressure that's been building over the past year that was seemed to be inevitable that conflict would come from it. Um, Eric, let's go to you a little bit on this one, because the way that the Chinese see this story is radically different than how the West and Africans are seeing it. Uh, from your point of view, looking at Weibo and some of the Chinese coverage, what was your reading of it? Um, from what I've seen from the Chinese coverage, a lot of it uh, just brings out kind of nationalistic uh, points of view um, on our Weibo page, uh, they're actually on the on Weibo as a whole. 
on the hashtags of the Chinese imprisonment in Ghana, there's been over a million people who have used that hashtag. Uh, but on our Weibo page, uh, it, it got, uh, for the size of it is, it's got eight, eight people, you know, many people replied to it. A lot of it was uh, rather nasty sentiment against Africans and, um, and saying, you know, uh, you know, we're investing money there, we're doing that, how can you do this to Chinese people? Or, uh, also saying, you know, there, there are many illegal Africans in China. You know, what if we did the same thing to the Africans in China? Yeah. You know, right there, wrongly. This is kind of the sentiment that's been coming from our Weibo page. From, well, uh, uh, yeah, let, let's read a couple comments here. And this is, uh, this is from Weibo, not our page. This was some of the general comments that were on uh, offbeatchina.com. We'll go ahead and post a link to this on our Facebook page. Uh, one of them, and this is a representative of the sentiments, poor China being bullied all around the world. Even a country as small as Ghana dares to do something like this. Our Ministry of Foreign Affairs is capable of nothing except whining. And, and Kobus, this is a very interesting comment in many ways because one of the things you see wrapped up in this comment is frustration both with Ghana and Africa, but also with the Chinese government. And one of the things that we've seen in a lot of the social media coming out of Chinese in Africa is this frustration of the either unwillingness or inability of the Chinese embassies or Chinese government to intervene on behalf of Chinese migrants who are in Africa. Yes, um, you know, kind of. I think the uh, the issue, well, one of the issues here is um, the, the, this complaint has come from the actual miners as well, complaining that their calls to the Chinese embassy in Ghana were not answered. I think they were answered for they were not answered for a pretty good reason, which is that this kind of small scale mining by foreigners in Ghana is illegal. It's it's um, explicitly illegal. It's you know, because small scale mining is supposed to be only be done by Ghanaians. Um, which is probably one of the reasons why the Chinese government didn't want to touch it originally. Um, the and and you know, kind of if you see from the uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or the the official spokespeople from the Chinese government saying, well, you know, kind of Ghana needs to enforce its own laws and Chinese people in Ghana need to follow those laws, which has been their line for a long time. But you do see as the crisis unfolded, you see, we saw more kind of direct calls from the Chinese from the Chinese government to. Um, to the Ghanaian government to treat these arrested Chinese miners humanely and to stop them from being robbed. Because what you see over and over is that a lot of these Chinese miners are saying that both police and it seems like a kind of a certain amount of of non non uniform Ghanaians were like taking money, taking cell phones, and robbing them. Um, you're not going to. So you do see the Chinese government actually reacting to that to that directly. And that was the biggest conversation that we had on our Facebook page this week was the alleged abuse uh, of the miners by the security services. And the fact is that you know we had a couple comments that said, well, they deserve it. And I, and I think this looks, you know, this is a this is a bad precedent for Ghana, who is really trying to you know, reestablish its its place on the international stage with the fact that it's now got this new oil uh, presence, with the fact that they are really trying to engage China in a very big way, uh, and the fact that they are a democracy uh, and they're very proud of the stability of their democracy, and and the fact that this happened, uh, you know, they deserve it. 
was um, to me a little bit upsetting. And so I challenged a lot of the, the commentators who, who kind of said that to say, you know, armed men beating up unarmed civilians for whatever transgression they did to me shouldn't happen, shouldn't happen in an ideal world. Uh, but as you pointed out, that's that seems to be one of the consequences of this. So I think, you know, China certainly doesn't look good in this, but I think Ghana came out of this not looking too great either. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, you know, kind of you also, Ghana is, is, is generally a country with quite a low crime rate, but over the last year, 87 Chinese miners were actually killed by, in, in robberies. Um, and then you see, like, people on the Ghanaian press complaining that the Chinese are protecting these mining compounds with guns, um, against robbers. But you're like, okay, so, but they're being robbed. You know, kind of so, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a, it suddenly it very quickly turns incredibly muddy and very difficult to kind of untangle. And everyone looks very bad. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go on to the second subject. The, uh, go ahead, actually, Eric. Go ahead uh, quickly. Oh, on the, on the, yeah, on the unarmed front, you know, the, the article that I translated a while ago, they, they claimed in that that Chinese have bought over 10,000 guns uh, since they've been there. And so oftentimes they're armed. They, it's, in the eight-year history of the Shanghai people being there, there's been lots of different armed conflicts, lots of times this small-time robbery and self-defense and, and this sort of thing as well. So the violence there has been, been going on for a long time. Well, it definitely seems like something that the Ghanaian government has to bring under control. I mean, it's unacceptable to have this level of illegal immigration in your country, especially as it, you know, it's fueled by money, gold, and, and now guns. So the, the Ghanaian government is absolutely within its rights to, to take control of this. The question is, how do they do it? And and in 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 Cobus, I, I would imagine you know to follow up on Eric's point, the, the world's going to be watching Ghana here a little bit to find out you know how they do it. And African other African governments may look at this as a as a precedent in terms of if if they can go ahead and clear out some of the Chinese illegal immigrants either with force or persuasion, then they may take action as well. Yeah, they might. Um, you know, kind of it. We will see from how this plays internationally. Um, you know, kind of whether perceptions of Africa are actually changing in the, in the international world. You know, because generally, you know, kind of you perceptions are that if you if you are if you do business in, in Africa, then you have to be prepared for this kind of chaos because that's what Africa is like. Um, you know, kind of and. It seems that, um, you know, obviously the, the African governments want to move away from that perception, you know, kind of if they want to continue their current growth, particularly, you know, kind of if they want to continue it past just extractive commodity, you know, kind of industries. So they have to create an image that it's okay and safe to do business in Africa. Um, I, this isn't helping, I think. No. Uh, let's move on now to our second subject, and this is now heading south uh, to Gabon. Gabon is a rather small country that is blessed with enormous amounts of timber and oil. And in that respect, it's attracted uh, quite a bit of a Chinese attention. But China's really a late actor in, in, in Gabon. The dominant player there is the former colonial power, France. Uh, France actually wrote the legal code. France is the largest foreign investor in Gabon. It's a French-speaking country. Uh, so with all of that in mind, this past week, China's uh, Sinopec, which is one of the largest uh, Chinese oil majors, uh, their division there named Addicts, uh, is in a, a billion-dollar oil dispute 
And Cobus, it looks like it's been another setback for, for addicts uh, in, in Gabon. Hard to tell exactly what's fueling this, although they say that the, they, are, they basically are transferring one of Attics's, uh oil projects to a Gabonese company uh, because for a failure to pay custom taxes. Tell us more about what the situation there in Gabon is. Yeah, it's also it's quite a murky situation. Um, in January, the the Japanese the the um, Gabonese government uh, stripped the rights uh, Adox's rights to one one um, oil field um, and transferred that oil field to a state owned company. And now they are stripping the rights to another one. Um, and they are, um, you know, kind of the reason they're giving is that is that. They were un- irregularities, you know, kind of quote unquote, like quite vaguely, and then also that um, customs duties weren't paid. Um, now, Adax is suing them, um, and um, it's going to—it's a—it's a case that's going to go to arbitration in Paris, um, and the Gabonese government is counter-suing Adax. Um, so it, it also—it's it's turning into a, a very kind of murky and quite expensive legal battle. Um, you know, at the same time, it seems that Adax wasn't the only only foreign company audited. Um, All of the foreign companies were audited and some analysts were saying that it seems like the Gabonese government might want to transfer some of these oil fields back to state-owned companies simply because the oil price has risen since since they sold the concessions. So, Eric, what's your reading of this situation? Yeah, the the last point that Cobus made was the point that really stuck out to me was... um, that there'd be these there'd be these long articles talking about how uh, this is a question probably going to raise later about how this is going to affect you know, China and Africa, and there'd be this long thing about how you know it's kind of a murky situation. People don't know quite what's going to happen, but you know how is this going to affect China and Africa? And then and there'd be one blurb saying, well, there's three other companies from other countries that are involved in this as well, and I just didn't see. Uh, yeah, I just didn't see quite where that was going. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting when you look at Gabon, you know, to your point, Eric, which is, you know, you have to put this in a bigger context. And and the Chinese are actually a rather small player in Gabon. Uh, and, I, and I highly recommend that everybody take a look at uh, Johanna Janssen, who we've had on the show recently. She wrote a report a couple years ago for uh, the, the, I think it's uh, kind of the International Extractives, uh, Extractive Industry Trans- Institute or something like that. You can find it on Online, if you look for Johanna Janssen, Janssen, that's how it's spelled, uh, Gabon and Congo transparency. And she wrote basically a, a long academic report on transparency and, and the extractive industries in Gabon and really talked about how the Chinese operate at a severe disadvantage compared to other foreign actors there, particularly French speaking actors. And so I think it's interesting to kind of you pick up on what Eric was saying is that you have to look at this in a bigger context, in the, the, the competition with not only French companies like Total, but also, of course, some of the Indian and, uh, and Italian companies that are operating there as well. Uh, and it's also relatively small compared to some of the other investments that China's making around the world. One of the things that Johanna Janssen said in the report was, this is a place where China was testing out some of its, uh, its new technologies. Gabon was never a primary area for its oil investments like it has in Angola and Sudan. So, Cobus, I want to kind of now step back a little bit and and kind of go into your area, which is in the media analysis phase of this. Because all last week uh, in the Western press, one of the things we were seeing was the fusion of the Ghana story and the Gabon story. 
and kind of linking that to some kind of uh, of, 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 of of you know verdict, if you will, on on the Chinese in Africa. And let me take one example here: uh, Quartz, which is the uh, online uh, business magazine put forth by the Atlantic, which is a big, big uh, news site and news magazine in the United States. And they've launched a dedicated business uh, called Quartz, and it's at QZ.com. And there's a journalist by the name of Jake Maxwell Watts. He wrote a headline on uh, June 6th, of, uh, which was last week, setbacks in Ghana and Gabon demonstrate increased pushback against China in Africa. Cobus, this was basically very much standard going for, for the week in the Western media. And I, and I guess my question is, uh, you look at a guy like Jake Maxwell Watts, and I pulled up his LinkedIn profile, and I don't mean to pick on him, I just picked any of these articles. But I feel that it's a vast oversimplification to take two isolated incidents and look at a relationship that has $25 billion of annual foreign direct investment that's now a $200 billion trading relationship, extraordinarily complex, and then to boil it down to two isolated instances that don't have any connection to one another and say the entire China-Africa experiment now is in jeopardy. So I look at a guy like Jake Maxwell Watts, um, you know, he is an English teacher at various schools. He's an office administrator at Colin Actuaries. He is a freelance journalist and editor at the Financial Times. Uh, he's done Lifestyle and Travel magazine. He's got no China, no Africa experience. And I guess my point is that a lot of editors are putting together these stories and linking these issues and saying, you know, China and Africa now is, is in jeopardy because uh, of the setbacks in Gabon and, uh, and Ghana. Did you have the same reaction that kind of said, that's a little bit of BS? Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, kind of, there seems to be a, a fantasy here that, oh, at some stage, you know, Africa is just going to get tired of China and then everything will just revert back to how it was in the 1980s. You know, kind of, um, and it's, it's just not going to happen. You know, kind of like the, the China Africa relationship is too complex and there's too many, too many, uh, you know, stakeholders involved and too much money involved for it to just reverse. Um, you know, kind of, I, I'm guessing that it was a situation where people were trying to connect two, two kind of stories into a single news hook, you know, kind of, and, but, you know, obviously that you need to do, be careful with that kind of combination, you know, kind of because, you know, China, like, I mean, um, Gabon and, uh, and Ghana, they're not, they're not particularly similar countries. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, you have to trade carefully there. You know, and even in the Reuters story by Emma Farge, who wrote this out of Geneva, and again, a lot of this is being written from afar. In her second paragraph, she, when she's talking about the Gabon story, you know, let me quote you here. The case adds to questions about whether African enthusiasm for Chinese investment in the continent's resources is fading after an iron ore project in Gabon was placed under review, and separately, three Chinese licenses were revoked in Zambia's coal sector. China's investment in Zambia's coal sector is a multi-billion dollar enterprise. The fact that there were three that were revoked shouldn't come as a surprise over the course of a, you know, a 10, 15, 20 year relationship. So it just seems to me like, wait, why are they, I mean, if they took any other context, take the Chinese in the U.S., take the U.S. in Latin America, pick your, pick your foreign direct investment countries, you're going to come across these problems. And I guess my point is that it's just lazy, shitty reporting when they're doing, when they're making these kind of linkages. 
Yeah, I think so. You know, kind of it's, it's also it's a problem that um, extractive industries is a very specialized field. Um, they, these pe- people don't maintain these publications don't maintain bureaus in Africa. Um, so you know, it's 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 difficult to do, and for that reason, there's not a lot of it, and so uh, not a lot of good of reporting on China Africa relations. And when one report is published, then you frequently see that it's getting re- kind of repeated and repeated, kind of. A Across, across different uh, publications. Um, and what you also then see is that um, frequently cases where African leaders um, and, you know, in, in, you know, you go down these articles and you see the greatest hits of the last year of all of the things that we've also discussed, you know, Lamida Sunusi and Ian Kama from Botswana and all of, all of the cases, individual cases where African leaders criticized China. And most of those cases, they didn't necessarily criticize the, the very fact of, the, of China-Africa trade. They wanted to change the terms on which that trade is happening um, you know kind of but they are then you know kind of listed on listed in these articles as African leaders condemning China African trade in critics um, you know yeah. kind of which is yeah exactly which is which is just really oversimplifying it. but actually what you're seeing with Arthur Mutambara in in, uh, in Zimbabwe and what you're seeing Arthur Mutambara is from Zimbabwe right Yes. Yes. That guy. I don't want to make two mistakes in one show. I think that would have been that would have crossed the threshold. Uh, but you're seeing, you know, even with with Michael Sada in Zambia, you know, a, a more nuanced, sophisticated approach to dealing with the Chinese. This is what we've we've been hoping for from from African governments is they actually start to negotiate, uh, you know, from a position of strength, and that means they want better deals. That doesn't necessarily mean they want to kick them out entirely. That doesn't necessarily mean they want to wipe the relationship out. You know, uh, Eric, when we see the, the the coverage in the West, which I think is, you know, less than impressive across the board from Reuters to, to the Atlantic and to others, uh, it's probably even worse in China. Uh, the Chinese media is not known for its subtlety and nuance when it covers things like uh, like the Chinese in Africa, if it covers it at all. What was your reading of some of the articles in Chinese this past week on, uh, on, 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 on the various events that occurred? Um, about what happened in Gabon, uh, I did not read any articles that happened in Chinese and about Gabon. Uh, the articles about Ghana were rather actually straightforward. There's more kind of a comments that are more nationalistic. Um, on the Western media side, though, it still does amaze me how uh, much you know, Western journalists seem to see China as just this monolith of... I mean, even these two cases between Gabon and Ghana, I mean, the actors that are coming from China are just completely different. You have a state, you know, massive state-owned company in you know, Sinopec, and then you have, you know, 50,000 people from Shangyang County who are, uh, you know, illegal, private, illegal immigrants, private actors who are coming to Ghana, and how they can stir this up as being China. Yeah. And you now there's China and Africa conflict. And from what you said before, I mean, replace, replace the country China and put, like, America, so, like, if this was BP that happened, you know, would, would BP having problems in Gabon, you know, affect American relations in Rwanda? It seems just kind of, it's so outlandish when you put it in such a context, but it's, it's, it's kind of sad for me to see that that can pass in Western media is kind of a uh, thing to say. Yeah, I mean, Cobus, what Eric's point is the fact that they oversimplify the Chinese side, but they also oversimplify the African side by saying, quote-unquote, Africa. 
And, uh, you know, to me, when they say Africa is, you know, as one entity as well, uh, you know, is just as insidious as when they refer to China as a single entity, when in fact, as Eric said, you know, the miners in from Shanglin are vastly different from Sinopec, which is a state-owned enterprise. Uh, so, I mean, this is, uh, this is part of, I guess, the, the, the depressing trend of, of journalism that we've seen covering this topic as a whole. Yeah, I mean that's why we, you know, what we, why we do what we do, you know, kind of is just to try and widen that conversation. Well, thank God they suck at it because that was allows us to actually, uh, you know, have our little space in the world. Um, we, you know, one of the areas that we can actually, you know, comment on and we can actually have this discussion is on Facebook. Except for you, Eric, in China. Sorry, you're you can't access Facebook. Uh, but I got a I got a VPN now. So. Oh, okay, but that VPN will work for one or two one or two weeks until they change the one algorithms in the Great Firewall. Um, but yeah. for those of you not in China, uh, Facebook is a fantastic place to get together and talk about uh, th- these issues. Uh, we actually right now have a lot of very, very vibrant debates going on uh, about these very issues, about Gabon, about Ghana. And what's incredible about the discussion going on on our Facebook page is how serious it is uh, and how well thought out and, and, and really from all positions. We don't have enough of the Chinese side of things, which would be nice one day to get more Chinese voices on there. But we do have a lot of different African voices. And so I highly recommend you check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Uh, if you are inside China listening to the show, which we do have a growing listenership inside China, and you speak Chinese, you know, Eric is hosting and moderating our Weibo feed at weibo.com slash Mu, And so that would be a place to do that. And we hope one day to actually bring those two worlds together. I don't know how we'll do that, but we'd like to, to bring some of the Chinese voices into the English-speaking world and some of the English-speaking voices into China. But one little plug for Eric, and, and he mentioned this very briefly, uh, he's been doing some fantastic translation work taking some of the Chinese social media reports and Chinese news reports about uh, the, the Chinese in Africa and translating them into English. And it's really a fantastic way to get a better understanding of the Chinese media coverage and kind of some of the key issues they are focusing on, because it is very different than what both African media and Western media is doing. So you can find that on our uh, website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Okay, let's go on to our yeah, third yeah, subject. Yeah, go ahead, Eric. Oh, yeah. yeah, actually, about, you know, the, the Ghana story, you know, I read many different stories in the Western media, and actually the one I translated from the Chinese media was from a private magazine, a 21st Century Business Herald out of Guangzhou. It was the most in-detail um, story that, that, that existed on, on the topic. It really got into what was happening on the personal level and how those kind of Chinese actors were, were living and working and how it, how it how it came to be in Ghana. So it was a, it was a really interesting read. That's why I, I just had to translate it. it it's but, a long article, but it's actually very, very good. And it really highlights some of the, the diversity in Chinese media is that a lot of people make the, the mistake in thinking that, you know, it's all Xinhua propaganda and it's all kind of boring platitudes. Uh, but particularly out of the south in Guangzhou, there's a, a Southern Weekend uh, media group that's there. Uh, also in Beijing, you've got Caixin, which is very good. So the journalism is is inconsistent in China, but there are some gems. And I think, as Eric pointed out, uh, this is one of them. So we've got it right on our homepage. Eric, it's, it's been published on the homepage, right? 
Okay. Okay. Front page right now. There you go, right on the front page, so you can read about uh, China in Ghana, and particularly interesting for this week. Let's go on to our third and final topic, and I think this one is again going to be right in uh, in Kobus's uh, neck of the woods. Uh, you uh, have a background in studying Japanese uh, African relations, and also the fact that you just spent three weeks and uh, and you were there during the Tokyo International Conference on African Development. This may have come as a surprise to a lot of people because Japan. You know, they're one of obviously they're the third largest economy in the world behind the U.S. and China. Um, they have a global footprint. Japanese companies, particularly electronics companies, have been very active in the Congo. They've been very active sourcing minerals uh, all throughout the world. Uh, but they haven't been known as an aggressive, active player in Africa. In part because they their style of diplomacy is very different. They don't necessarily do these big, high-profile summit diplomacy where you see, you know, their new prime minister or their new president take a take a tour of the, uh, uh, you know, a global tour as Xi Jinping did. Uh, you know, Abe he got into power and you know he doesn't he hasn't been to Africa and a prime minister hasn't been to Africa in six years. Uh, but they're pulling out the checkbook in Cobus. They're putting out thirty-two billion dollars on the line for African investment and development. Much of it targeted, this will sound familiar, towards infrastructure and small business. So it really seems like that the Japanese are, are really following what the Chinese are doing. And very interesting is they don't seem to be following the playbook of the West. Am I misreading that? It's, they are and they aren't. Um, for a long time, the Japanese tended to to uh, copy the way Europe engaged with, with Africa to a certain extent in the sense that they tended to focus more, more purely on aid. Um, and, uh, the you know, kind of so their foreign um, agencies like um, the J- Japanese... Um, like JICA, I can't remember what it stands for, it's like the Japanese International Cooperation Agency. Um, they tended to do a lot of, of work very similar to, to uh, European aid, where you're not kind of setting up schools and, and doing primary health care and that kind of work. Um, and uh, But recently, you know, kind of every, uh, TICAD comes up every five years. Um, and um, it seems like they, they took a bit of a, a change, a bit of a change in direction um, for, for the new one. Um, some of it has to do with the fact that, um, that there's been changeovers within the Japanese government. Um, and, you know, they, they have a, bit, a much more aggressive um, focus on economic growth at the moment. So um, all of the ministries of the Japanese government were kind of pulled together to, to try and develop uh, economic, economically grow, economic growth directed strategies for Africa um, this time, rather than just you know kind of focusing on aid as as it as it tended to do in the past. Um, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, let's take a look a little bit at the natural resource diplomacy that's going on here, and 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 interestingly enough, much of that is actually intertwined with China. So one of the key uh, resources that the Japanese targeted in that came out of the TCAD discussions was uh, rare earths. Now, if you recall from a dispute that the Chinese had with Japan over the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands, uh, notice we actually say both because um, these are the islands in the South China Sea that are disputed between the Chinese and the Japanese. And as a result of some of these island disputes, um, China cut off exports to Japan of rare earths. That, of course, shut down 
Toyota Prius uh, production. It shut down a number of other auto manufacturers, uh, which depend on rare earth from China, who, of course, puts out 95% of the world's rare earths. Rare earths are actually something common and uh, or available in Africa. So the Japanese see that as one opportunity to reduce their dependence on China and, and kind of extract themselves from any type of uh, mineral dependency on China. Uh, and then since uh, Fukushima, the nuclear reactor meltdown that happened uh, in 2000, I think it was a 2011, um, yeah. then uh, they, uh, they're importing more oil than they ever have in, in recent years. So it seems like Africa now is, is vital to, to Japan in many ways, not just because it's competing with China for headlines on aid. Yes. Um, and, you know, kind of for a long time, Japan has tended to focus its its aid and its um, this kind of diplomacy on Southeast Asia. So they always had a very close relationship with the ASEAN countries. Um, and they tended to, Africa tended to not really be on their radar as much. Um, and I think to a certain extent, I'm, I'm very hesitant um, to follow the the argument that's been put forth in, in Western press that, you know, Japan is being prodded into greater African engagement, you know, in order to try and catch up with China. I think it might not be 100% wrong, but I think it's oversimplified. Um, I think the, the fact that China has been able to do business in Africa has changed Japanese perceptions of, of what, you know, kind of what might be possible in Africa. And the fact that they, are, they, they need more raw, um, you know, kind of raw minerals for, for because um, the Abe government is very aggressively pushing for, for greater export growth. So they need the raw minerals in order to, to create the products that they want to export. And also they need gas, um, gas and oil, you know, kind of because, because of Fukushima. So, you know, I think that shifted their perspective a little bit away from pure aid um, and towards, you know, kind of something that, that more resembles the kind of Chinese uh, idea of kind of win-win investment, you know, growth-based investment. Eric, nothing seems to infuriate, you know, Chinese nationalism more than the word Japan in any context. It just, you know, if you want to light up a party, just say the word Japan and, you know, it's off and running. Um, you know, so the yeah. news that the Japanese are, you know, at least as Kobus pointed out, the perception that the Japanese may be competing with the Chinese, whether that's accurate or not, it certainly seems that it might be read in China as being, uh, you know, well, China's doing a lot in Africa. Now the Japanese are coming. And so this kind of Sino-Japanese rivalry that is really dominating the news in, in China and certainly in Japan and North Asia may now extend itself to the African theater. Yeah, um, well, from what I've seen thus far from Chinese media, um, when I, on our Weibo, there hasn't been much action. I've posted a few articles about, uh, about the summit that just happened. Uh, there wasn't much uh, talk that happened after that, but the articles themselves, um, they all kind of focus around the point of Japan trying to catch up with China or Japan uh, you know, China's had so much investment, now Japan's trying to do the same thing. Uh, so, but other than that, uh, you know, nothing, nothing major I've seen thus far in terms of Chinese media. Yeah, I, I, I suspect that when it comes to Sino-Japanese relations, uh, obviously the islands are the, are the key area of their focus, and that's just what, yeah. you know, and that's what enrages people. But, uh, Kobus, you yeah. know, how do you think the Japanese, you know, if they, if they step up their engagement in Africa, you know, especially, 
you know, we've talked about the difficulties that some African, uh, both governments and people have in dealing with foreigners, but in particular dealing with Asians. And will they understand the subtleties, do you think, you know, in many African countries about the differences in the Japanese style and the Chinese style? Because as you and I both know, they're vastly different in how these two groups approach business, culture, language, all the different things. What do you think will, you know, as the Japanese make their presence more well-known, how do you think various African entities will respond? It's difficult to say. Um, as, as you say, you know, because China and Japan, they're very, very different in, in the way that they deal with things. Um, they're very different approaches. And, you know, I think, I think you know, the, the, the Japanese are going to have to make themselves understandable in Africa. You know, they have a long, they actually have a long presence in Africa, but a quiet one. Um, and it was interesting for me, you know, kind of the, when China is officially responded to, to this, the new aid package from Japan, they kind of, the, the spokesperson was saying that they're pleased to see Japan introduce cooperative initiatives with Africa and they hope it, were, it goes well, you know, kind of, and it was this kind of slight dig against the fact that, that TCAD is actually older than FOCAC. Um, you know, kind of TCAD was actually the first kind of multilateral, you know, kind of big Asia, East Asia, Africa mega summit before FOCAC kind of took over. So, you know, but I think the Japanese find it difficult to make themselves understood, not only in, not only in Africa, but in lots of places. Um, you know, and it's, it's a challenge. I think, I think that's, that's something that I have to work on. I think, they might very well not only be be influenced by the Chinese presence in in, um, in Africa, but also the South Korean presence in Africa, which is growing very rapidly. And the the difference is that the South Koreans tend to keep things very quiet, and they tend to not do a lot of di- diplomacy. They they focus almost exclusively on business. So it seems like um, the Japanese might be straggling the straddling the difference between this very high profile diplomatic uh, Xi Jinping approach and the, very quiet, 100% business approach from the South Koreans. They're trying to find a balance there, I think. You know, it's funny, you, you're, you're, you're rocking my world with what, what you're saying, because just, I'm, you know, I'm here in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, and just the other day I read how, you know, the Vietnamese uh, have partnerships in Angola and in other parts of Africa, and in some ways, what's interesting is that as the, the, the global economy center of gravity has now shifted, and it, it really has shifted from Europe and the United States to Asia, um, that what we're seeing in Africa is, and it's not just happening in Africa, it's happening in Latin America, it's happening in other parts of the developing world here in Southeast Asia as well, um, is the, is the, the, inf- the effects of that. Now the world's largest and most dynamic economies are, are here in Asia, and as a result, they're reaching out to other parts of the world in lots of different ways. Uh, but it, it, at the end of the day, this can only be good, you would think, for, for Africa, that they have choice and that they have leverage, and that the more sophisticated they become at dealing with the Koreans, the Vietnamese, the Chinese, the Japanese, uh, it will help them, uh, you know, advance and develop, you know, and not and break those those centuries-old reliance and dependencies which have not always been healthy on the West. So it seems to me that this is part of a bigger global trend of the, the economic center of gravity now being in Asia, and, and what we're seeing on these headlines and these summits is, is the ripple effects of that. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think you also, you know, in the process, you also see the shifting, um, you know, towards the Indian, the Indian Ocean area, um, you know, a shifting of new 
global kind of economic and, and political power towards the Indian Ocean, you know, kind of rim, rather than, for example, you know, transatlantic, obviously. You know, Eric, when one of my biggest frustrations in, in talking with young Chinese, uh, either online or you know, or offline, is is how unfortunately and regrettably ignorant so many are when it comes to their their country's growing presence in the world and the dependence now that china has on engaging the rest of the world uh but for the shortcomings of you know chinese media and the fact that china is such a large country that their domestic media has such an obsession focusing on domestic affairs as opposed to international affairs but one of the i mean this is one of the most exciting stories is this rise of korean japanese chinese engagement all over the world uh but yet you know for the most part I mean, with the exception of the a couple, you know, uh, news publications that you've pointed out, the, the Chinese media isn't that sophisticated in doing these things, and as a result, the Chinese people themselves are rather ignorant of all of it. Yeah, um, I would tend to agree with that. Um, whether it's online or with uh, many of my Chinese friends, uh, you know, lots of it's based upon when if they talk about news, if they talk about politics, lots of it's based upon domestic. But at the same time, yeah, I'm in, I'm in Guizhou in the southwest. It's not known for people to going abroad, but uh, it's amazing how many people I've met who have friends, have siblings, or have themselves um, done business in Africa. And um, so on that end, uh, when I ask them about their time, uh, sometimes they have quite a bit of sophistication in how they interacted with the local people there. Sometimes not so much, but uh, that's just my personal anecdote on the subject. Interesting. Well, it's uh, it's been a, a very lively week, and uh, you know, we and our conversation continues on all of these subjects over on Facebook. Again, I'm just so excited to see that we're closing in on seventy five thousand followers on our Facebook page. Uh, how many on our Weibo page right now? About one fifty. We're closing out 150. Yeah. 150. Okay, we're getting there. We're, we're definitely getting there. Uh, Eric uh, manages Weibo, and you can follow him at, at weibo.com slash zhongfeixiangmu. That's the pinion for that. Uh, and then, uh, again, that's China Africa Project in Chinese. Uh, and then you can follow us on Facebook at China at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Hey, Eric, if people want to follow you on Twitter when you have uh, ability to break through the Great Firewall and get onto Twitter, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm, I'm tweeting every day at E Mikester. Uh, that's M Y X T E R. Okay. And so I'm tweeting every day on about China and China African relations. So. Awesome, and doing it from China, no less. And so uh, doing it and, from doing it from China. Yeah. From China, and then uh, Kobus. If people want to follow what you're reading and thinking and following, where can they find you? I am on Twitter at Sardinesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me, I'm at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R on Twitter, and I'm tweeting almost every day on the latest China-Africa headlines from around the web, only in English, so we're kind of putting all the Chinese stuff to, to Eric in uh, in Guiyang in, in Chinese. But uh, And of course, you can find Kobus and myself on Facebook, where we're kind of moderating these conversations, great discussions. If you want to follow the podcast, you can easiest way to do it is to go over to iTunes, hit the subscribe button. But you can also listen to us on our mobile apps. We're uh, we have Android and iOS mobile apps, and we're on SoundCloud, and also of course on Stitcher and the BlackBerry Network in South Africa. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. We'll be back again next Sunday with another episode. Until then, thank you so much for listening. 